Please turn with me to the book of James. What an excellent hymn as a reminder of our trials and our temptations that he will hold us fast. Today we'll be looking at verses 17 and 18 here in James. And just as a heads up, I think um, as, I, as I move to doing both services, um, we'll be looking at the book of Ephesians in the morning and James in the evening. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Please bow with me in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord, I am but a weak and frail vessel, and I need you to help me to preach your word faithfully this morning. And we, your people, need you to help us to hear your word and apply it to our lives. Father, remove those things that would distract our hearts and our minds from your word. Help us to see your goodness in this text today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we finished looking at a sinful response to trials. Trials come, we get lured into temptation by our sinful desires, we give into those sinful desires, and this leads to death. And we saw a stark contrast between a biblical response to trials in the beginning of James chapter 1 and then a sinful response to trials. So that instead of rejoicing in our trials, we turn them into occasions of temptation through our sinful desires. And instead of building up spiritual endurance through our trials, we begin to justify giving in to our temptation in our minds, perhaps saying, God has me here. It is his fault. And instead of asking God for wisdom to endure, which leads to Christ-likeness, we create plans to carry out our sins, which leads to the opposite of Christ-likeness. And instead of enduring to the end, which leads to life, we carry out our sinful plans, which James says leads to death. Two very different paths that we can take as we respond to trials in our lives. And you can think of that whenever you're facing a trial. You know that there is a biblical response to this, or there is a sinful response. There's only two ways to go there. And as James addresses a sinful response to trials, he tells us that we are not to blame God for our temptation to sin. 
And he addresses those who in the midst of temptation to sin say that they are being tempted by God and justify their desires to give into temptation because somehow God in his sovereignty has me in this situation and therefore it's kind of his fault. And as a response to people sinfully blaming God for temptation and sin, James gives us three reasons why we cannot blame God for our temptations. The first reason was the holiness of God. We cover that in verse 13. God is so holy that he cannot be tempted to sin and he cannot tempt others to sin. The second reason was the nature of our sins. We saw in verses 14 and 15 last week that that we are tempted and we sin because of our own desires. There's no one, nobody, no situation or circumstance that can actually make us sin. It is our own desires that cause us to sin. And so today we will be covering James' third and final reason why we cannot blame God for temptation. And this is the un changing goodness of God. And we're going to consider this truth under three headings. The source of all good, the constancy of God's goodness, and the proof of God's goodness. So the source of all good. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The way this is worded makes it a little bit difficult to interpret. Now, we know that from above refers to God as he is in heaven above us, but but what is every good gift and every perfect gift? What is the distinction here? Now, James has every good gift and every perfect gift, but if you look at this in the Greek, he actually uses a different word for gift both times. He doesn't use the same word for gift. Jameson Fawcett Brown points out that the first Greek word used for gift, as in every good gift, has to do with the act of giving. And the second Greek word used in every perfect gift is referring to the actual thing given. So MacArthur translates this verse this way, every good thing given and every perfect gift. So there is perhaps a play on words here. James uses two different words for gift and moves from the act of giving to the thing given itself. And he also uses the word good and then uses the word perfect, which has the idea of completeness. So we move from every act of giving good, that is the root in a sense, to every perfect or complete thing given, which is the fruit. Now consider this in light of verse 15. Then lust, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, which means finished or complete, brings forth death. So here we have a contrast between the source of sin and the source of of good. In verses 14 and 15, it is our sinful desires that cause us to be tempted and to sin. Sin starts in our hearts with our sinful 
desires. And once full grown or complete, sin leads to death. So from the very beginning of temptation coming into our minds and hearts to the conception of sin, to sin being full grown or complete leading to death, we are to blame. From the root to the fruit. From the temptation to the commission of sin. is our blame. God takes the blame for none of that. On the other hand, from the very conception or initiation of good being given to us to the completion of us receiving good things, who is the source? God. Albert Barnes says the difference between good and perfect here, it is not easy to mark accurately. The general sense or summary of it all is this, that God is the author of all good. Everything that is good on the earth, we are to trace to him. Evil has another origin. So just as we take the blame for every sin we commit, God is to receive the credit for all good. And not only is he the source of all good, but we are told as believers that that everything that happens to us is for our good. God is the source of all good, and everything that comes from him is by definition good. Now, you might not like your trials or where you are at in life right now, but if you are a believer, God has you there for your good. We often have a hard time believing that, don't we? Sometimes we struggle to see how good will come from a situation or trial. But consider this, dear friends. When you give gifts to others, do you actually believe and trust that those gifts you are giving to others are good? Are you capable of giving good gifts to others? If so, why do you have a hard time believing that what God has given to you, what God is allowing you to experience is for your good? What does our Lord say about this? Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? If we, who are the very source of all of our temptations and sins, know how to give good gifts to others, why on earth we would, would we believe that a God who is the very source of good and who is nothing but good cannot give us good things or would give us bad things? We say to our children who are afraid, trust me, mommy and daddy would not let you get hurt. Mommy and daddy are doing this for your good and we expect our little children, to believe that because we know it is true. But when Paul says all things work together for good to those who love God, we have a hard time believing it. 
Dear friends, do we trust our own wisdom and goodness more than God's? God forbid. Now perhaps you say, I understand what you are saying. But I really just don't understand how God is using this situation for my good. Well, guess what? That's okay. Because you are commanded not to trust in your own understanding. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own, what? Finish it for me. Understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. He is the source of good. We can trust him. And James emphasizes this point a little bit more. He, he continues in verse 17. He says that all good comes down from the Father of lights. Here we are told that God, that the very God who is the source of all good is the Father of lights. Here we have what appears to be another play on words. We'll see in the last part of this verse here that, that James seems to be kind of indicating the, the heavenly lights like the sun, the moon, and the stars. But, but we also know that God in Scripture is referred to as light. For example, John, 1 John 1.5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So there is this contrast in Scripture between light and darkness. There is God who is light, and there is darkness which represents everything that God is not. Albert Barnes says, Light in the Scriptures is the emblem of purity, truth, knowledge, prosperity, and happiness, as darkness is the opposite. So, so this is referring to God. He is perfectly pure without any admixture of sin. He has all knowledge with no admixture of ignorance on any subject. He is infinitely happy with nothing to make him miserable. He is infinitely true, never stating our continents in error. He is blessed in all his ways, never knowing the darkness of disappointment and adversity. This God who is good knows all things. He is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, has has perfect wisdom in all situations, and he is good. God is the source of good. And he is pure light, which is as opposite as you can get to darkness. But what if he changes? Perhaps I could trust God during my previous trial, but this, this is a whole other level of trial. Can I still trust him? Or perhaps in my life, it, it seems like God has always been there for, more, for me. He, he's never let me experience really thing major, no major trials. But, but now all of a sudden, the trials are just piling up on me. Has God changed? Is he still good? Can I still trust him? This leads to our second head in the constancy of God's goodness. Look at verse 17. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Here, James is referring to God's immutability. 
There is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. And what do we mean by immutability? We mean that God does not change. God cannot change. I like Grudem's definition of immutability. He says, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. His being does not change. His perfections do not change. His purposes do not change. And his promises do not change. They cannot change. And this is what James captures when he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. As I mentioned before, the way James states that God is the Father of lights indicates that he is at least partially talking about those heavenly lights that give us light. He is likening God to those great lights in the sky, but unlike those lights, he does not change. Douglas Moo puts it this way. The Greek words translated variation and turning often refer to astronomical astronomical phenomena in the ancient world. And the earlier reference to God as the father of lights makes it almost certain that this is James' intentions here. Variation connotes the orderly and periodic movements of sun, moon, planets, and stars. Shadow of turning should probably be taken to mean shadow due to change. And this refers to the phases of the moon or to the constant variation of night and day. So the sun is a great light. And actually tells us something of the great glory of God. But I didn't see sunlight for the first two weeks I lived here. The stars are great light, but we can't see them during the day. There are solar and and lunar eclipses. Sometimes there's a full moon, but sometimes we can only see half the moon. Sometimes a quarter moon. God is not like that. His light is constant. It does not change. He does not change. His goodness does not change. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God's immutability, the fact that he does not change, is a great comfort to us because it guarantees that he will continue to be the source of all good. Nothing evil will ever come from him. That never changes. Guaranteed. He will always be the source of good. He is always trustworthy. He always cares for and provides for his people. But James does not stop here. He goes on to give us irrefutable proof of the goodness of God. This is the third heading, the proof of God's goodness. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
Now this verse perfectly describes what we call regeneration. Or being born again. The new birth. But this seems like a very random place to mention regeneration. But as we go through this, you will see how relevant it is. James says that God brought us forward. And this is what we describe as regeneration, the act of bringing us forth. This is birthing language. The word means to give birth to or to breed. I like the way the King James words it. It says, of his own will begat he us. He begat us. He brought us forth, gave birth to us, spiritually speaking. And this is consistent with the language we have in Scripture concerning regeneration. As Jesus told Nicodemus, John 3, 7, you must be born again. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And I don't want to spend too much time here today. But, but I want us to, to under, make sure that we understand this so that we know what James is saying. So when we say born again, what exactly does that mean? I like the way John Frame words it in his systematic theology. He says, The presupposition of Scripture is that apart from God's grace, we are spiritually dead. This means that in and of ourselves, we do nothing to please God. So just as conception and birth bring new physical life, so the work of regeneration brings spiritual life. Through the new birth, we gain new desire and new ability to serve God. So my definition of regeneration is this, a sovereign act of God bringing a new spiritual life in us. And as a reference, J, uh, Frame mentions Ephesians 2, 1. And you, he made alive who were dead and trespasses and sins. So we are born dead in our sins. Absolutely dead. We don't see our need for a Savior. We can't see our need for a Savior. We don't understand spiritual things. Scripture tells us that they are foolishness to the unbeliever. He can't understand them. But God in His grace regenerates us. And after being regenerated or born again, we see our need for a Savior. And then and only then can we respond to the gospel call with faith and repentance. Now here again we see a parallel with verse 15. The word James uses to say that God begat us or brings us forth is the same word used in verse 15 where James says, Sin, once finished, brings forth death. So sin, which is the result of our own desires, brings forth or gives birth to death. Whereas God gives birth to new spiritual beings. Once again, we are the source of our sins and nothing more. He is the source of all good. 
The only thing we can beget or bring forth is sin leading to death. God brings forth good. He brings forth spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. So let us look at a few more of these characteristics of regeneration James mentions. So who regenerates us? Well, we've already seen that God does this of his own will. Of his own will, he brought us forth. This is an act of God, not of men. It is done completely by God and according to his will. And this is what we call monergistic regeneration. That God, according to his own will, gives us spiritual life and we don't assist in the process. And this is important to understand because there are some who teach what is called synergistic regeneration. That, that regeneration or the new birth is a joint effort between God and man. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on this today, but, but, but we need to know why James is emphasizing monergistic regeneration. You know, the idea is this. We don't decide to be born physically. That was the efforts of our parents and God. And just like physical birth, we can't decide to be born again spiritually. It is an act of of God. Spiritually dead people, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, do not make spiritual decisions. They are incapable. And I'm going to show you why this is so relevant in a few minutes here. But there's another thing James mentioned. He, he mentions a means of regeneration here. He says, by the word of truth. Now, James tells us that God of his own will regenerates us, and this is solely an act of God, but God works through the gospel in regeneration. The gospel here is referred to as the word of truth, not that the gospel compels God to regenerate people, but we are told that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, how does this work? As we preach and share the gospel with others, God in his sovereignty, according to his own will and plans, regenerates souls who then respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. And the final point of regeneration is this. Why? Why does God do this? James says that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is using Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were given to God. The, the first and best of the harvest was given to God. Matthew Henry says, The end and design of God's giving, renewing grace is here laid down that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we should be God's portion and treasure and a more peculiar property to him as the first fruits were, and that we should become holy to the Lord as the first fruits were consecrated to him. Now there's some debate about what is meant by first fruits, but I think Matthew Henry captures the essence. 
that we should become holy to the Lord. God, in regenerating us, has turned us into new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature, born again. And as new creatures, we are different. Consider again Ephesians 2, 1, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are dead in our sins, slaves to our sins, and God regenerated us so that we could be different. Paul says in Romans 6, you were once slaves to sin. But you have been set free and are now slaves to righteousness. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. 1 John 3.9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Do you see the connection there? And I love how Frame puts this. He says that the new birth is like a seed that God plants in believers that grow into a holy life that resists temptation. Let me repeat that for you. The new birth is like a seed that God plants in believers that grow into a life, into a holy life that resists temptation. Let's think about this practically. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were slaves to sin, God regenerated us, changing our very natures so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He changed our nature so that we can live holy lives that resist temptation. Now, if God did all of that of his own will, why on earth would we think that he would tempt us to sin? What sense does that make? He has manifested his goodness to us by setting us free from sin. Would he do this simply to tempt us to sin? The Father of light, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, the God who is light, in whom there is no darkness, poured out his wrath upon his Son to deliver us from the guilt and power of sin. Would he do that to then put us in situations to make us sin? Absolutely not. The point in James talking about regeneration is to show God's goodness. He regenerated us of his own will. There was no outside force compelling him to give you new spiritual life. It was of his own will. And you were spiritually dead. You were a slave to your sins. And God delivered you from that bondage so that you could live a holy life. And then you blame God for your sins by saying, God, you put me in this situation. Therefore, you're kind of responsible for my sins. Or we say like Adam, God, it was the woman you gave to me. 
She made me do it. My, my boss made me do it. My, my children made me do it. And again, in essence, when we do that, we blame God who sovereignly put us in those situations. We blame the very God who has set us free from sin at a high cost. That's James' argument. We can't blame God for our temptation because he is a holy God. A God who, who, who cannot dwell with sin. And because our natures are such that every temptation and every sin that we commit is the result of our own sinful desires, God has nothing to do with that. And to top it off, God is the source of all good and manifested his goodness to us by setting us free from the power and guilt of sin. Dear friends, would a God who is good like that tempt us to sin? Would his intentions ever be for us to sin? Absolutely not. Let's close with a few practical applications here. Number one, let God's goodness woo you and draw you away from temptation. In verse 15, we are warned that sin leads to death. We are told to resist because giving in to temptation to sin leads to death. And this is a stern warning, but, but, but he doesn't leave us there. He also persuades us by the goodness of God. So, dear friends, in the midst of your trials, when you are tempted to sin, remember that the unchangeable God, who is the very source of good, is allowing you to be in that trial. Remember that. God has me here. I know it's hard. I know that I can't understand it. But this is God's will. And He is good. If I'm in the midst of my trial and the trial is so hard that I'm being tempted to to sin by my own sinful desires, remember that the good God has you there. And number two, see temptation for what it is. If God is the source of all good, and he does not tempt us to sin, then we know that nothing good comes in those temptations. Let me repeat that one more time. If God is the source of all good, and we are told that God does not tempt us to sin, then what good can can come from giving into that temptation? You know that it is the source of nothing but bad. I I labored last Sunday to point out that, that temptation to sin is bait. You, you think you're getting a, a, a nice, juicy worm, and as soon as you bite it, you have a hook in your mouth. 
It's bait. God is the source of good. Not the baited hooks we are being tempted with. And number three, if God gives us all the good we need, then what are we looking for in sin? When we give into temptation, knowing that it is bait, and knowing that God is the source of good and that this temptation is not coming from God, then what on earth are we looking to gain by giving into that temptation? It's like God gives you this steak dinner and then he puts cheese, somebody else puts cheese on a mousetrap and you go for the cheese on the trap. God has abundantly provided for us. And the devil lures us with a hooked worm. And we go for that. MacArthur puts it this way. When we, as God's children, are so abundantly and continually showered with the most gracious, valuable, and satisfying blessings our Heavenly Father can bestow, why should anything evil have the slightest attraction to us? Dear friends, only fools go for baited hooks when God has provided everything they need. Sin brings nothing good. But God is the source of all good. And again, he proved it to us by giving us spiritual life that can resist temptation. Dear friends, may we seek good from God alone. In the midst of our trials. Don't, don't keep your eyes on baited hooks. But trust that a God who sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and to set you free from the power of sin has you there for your good. Again, the flames are not meant to hurt you, but to refine you, to remove the dross. And dear friends, recognize the deception and sin that nothing good will come from it. Maybe one ounce of pleasure, one ounce of pleasure. But again, like Thomas Watson said, what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure endure a sea of wrath? And dear friends, may we never blame this good and holy and perfect God who set us free from temptation. And may we never blame him for our temptations. Which means this. May we never blame the people and circumstances he allows us to be around or to be in. And may we all respond to trials in a way that pleases God, knowing that he brings them and allows him for our good. Dear friends, this week when, when a trial comes your way, I want you to be conscious of that. I want you to say to yourself, this is a trial. I know this is a trial. My, my patience 
is being tested right now. I know this is a trial, and I have two ways that I can possibly respond to this. I can trust God in this and rejoice in it. And if, and if I don't understand how to get through it, I can pray for wisdom that I may endure. Or I can listen to my flesh and the promise that I will be gratified and have pleasure if, if I respond to this in a sinful way. Those two ways, those two paths are before you every single day. Maybe we be conscious and faithful to respond to these things in a way that pleases God. Let us pray. O Most High God, You have shown us in remarkable ways Your goodness. Father, what a manifestation of Your goodness to us that You sent Your Son to deliver us, not only from the the, the guilt of sin, but from its power. Father, we thank you that in having new spiritual life and being born again, we can actually resist temptation. That we are not actually slaves to sin and temptation any longer. May we be aware of this in in every situation in our life when the temptation just seems so strong and irresistible. May we know that we do not have to give in. And, oh God, may we seek you for wisdom. That we would know how to endure our trials in such a way that we build up this spiritual endurance which leads to Christ-likeness, as James says. Father, we know as well that there may be some here today who don't know you. Which means that they are still in bondage to sin. They are slaves to sin. Father, if there are any here in that condition, we ask that you would set them free this day by by breathing new spiritual life into their souls. That they can see the beauty of Christ. His love in in dying on a cross for our sins and that they could respond to to the gospel call with faith and repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.